so glad to be back. Um, as some of you know, I took a little bit of a mini sabbatical where I had roughly three weeks off, um, and I needed it, and I appreciate you all letting me have it. I am re-energized, and I'm, I'm nervous this morning. I'm even jittery, so you know what that means? Y'all are in for it. You're going to get it today. I don't, don't really know. Now, I, I do need to uh, start service off on, on a bit I don't know if it's a somber note, but a bit of a somber note. As many of you know, we lost someone that we love very deeply um, this week in Deb Heberlin. And uh, it's somber because she's gone, but it's also a celebration because she's no longer in pain. Um, and so many of you are, that are here, I feel like never really got a chance to meet the real Deb. When she was here in the past uh, couple months slash year, year and a half, she's been pretty sick. And uh, she's been battling and she's a fighter, but... And this is not a slide on anybody else, but I want you to know, if I could take someone's spirit and attitude and love for the Lord and implant it in every single one of us, it would be hers. Because Deb was truly the greatest. And I told this story uh, to, during our salt group, but my very first Sunday here, I was just filling in for somebody preaching. The pastor was gone and they needed somebody. And literally the person that was supposed to be here had to bow out and was like, hey, I know this guy he can help you out. And I came and uh, it wasn't one of my best sermons, I got to tell you. Uh, (laughs) I do remember that. But what I remember even more than that is when I walked in and we were just in these two bays, this, that whole section of the room was not even here. And this tight space and it was filled and Jerick and I snuck in 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 a back row and Deb was sitting right in front of us. And so when it came time to greet one another, she turned around, big smile on her face. I went to shook her hand and she grabbed my hand and pulled me in and said, we don't shake here. We're family. We hug. And she gave me a hug. And I thought, what a strange little woman, (laughs) right? What a strange little woman. But as she hugged me and she squeezed me, I'm telling you, my heart warmed. And I'm being really honest with you guys, I would not be at this church today if it wasn't for her, because I never thought that I was going to be offered a, a position here at Cross Point. But when it came time to make the decision, do I stay where I was at or do I come here? Her hug was the thing that sealed the deal. It's what it was. And um, she's going to be so incredibly missed. And at the same time, her spirit really is going to live on. She left quite the legacy, and it's one that I will never forget. Um, and if that weren't enough, we've experienced loss in so many other ways this week. Uh, Heath Hamilton, as many of you know, he is one of my oldest and dearest friends, and he lost his mother early this week. Um, and it was, um, honestly a really similar situation to what Deb was dealing with. And, uh, it came out of nowhere for them though. They thought they'd take her to the hospital and patch her up and bring her home and, it just wasn't the case, and so they're dealing with that loss as well, and Nathan Lee lost his grandfather, which if you know Nathan and you've ever had an opportunity to speak to him, his grandfather meant the world to him and, and, and was such an important part in him finding faith and, and, and just being on the journey that he's on, and so we've got so many struggling, but something else I wanted to talk about, and I know I'm going long before I start the sermon, and we'll get into it, I promise, but um, there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on in our church. A lot. You know, I would say any, any given time, I'd say anywhere from 10 to maybe 30% of a congregation is really dealing with stuff. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'd say our number right now is close to 90. I mean, everywhere you look, somebody's got a battle that they are fighting. 
They're losing loved ones. They're fighting chronic illnesses. They're fighting chronic pain. They're struggling mentally. They're not being given the desire of their heart. There are struggles all over this place, and people are battling, and we're battling. And, and guys, I think, and part of me on my sabbatical, I think, was to come to this realization. I think the reason for that is because this church is getting ready to do big things for the kingdom. I truly believe that. I truly believe that. And I also believe that if there is good and there is God, then there is evil and there is Satan. And Satan doesn't want those big things to happen. And so we face trials and we face tribulation. Here's what I know about being cast into the fire. There's one of two outcomes. You come out more pure, with more strength, or you're consumed. You're consumed. There's a really great worship song that's been out for a while that tells us that there's another in the fire. There's another in the fire. You know, that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were cast in and somebody looks in, they say, didn't you just cast three into the fire? And yeah, we cast three. And there's four in there. There's four in there. When we are in the midst of the fire, we are not alone. Sometimes we just have to turn our head to look and see that that is the truth and that is the case. So if you're one of those that is fighting a battle now, whatever your battle is, and I understand I'm the person that likes to belittle my battle. I'm struggling, but I'm not struggling as much as they are. Theirs is worse. They deserve more attention. They deserve, that's not how God works. It's not how God works. And I'm thankful that that's not how he works. If you are in the midst of a battle right now, understand that God is with you. And if you want to be on the side of things that is strengthened, then you must in this time, above all other times, cling to God and run to his presence. He is there. He is waiting for you. Do not forget that. Do not forget that. Okay. With that being said, we are continuing our series, Jesus is for Losers. Jesus is for losers. When Rodney, uh, for those of you that don't know, I got to give credit where credit's due. Rodney authored this um, sermon series, and when he sent me the idea and he told me what it was about, I, dude, I was jazzed. I was like, I, th- I wish I would have come up with this. And the name, and I almost thought about Rodney, don't tell anybody you did it. I'll just take credit, right? I'm, I'm kidding. But I don't know about you, but so many times in my life, that's how I've identified myself. Paul, you are such a loser. You are such a loser. You just can't get it right. You just can't succeed. Somebody put, you know, the the ball on the tee for you and you swung right over the top of it. Like, you just can't seem to figure this out. No matter what, even when things are going really well, I always seem to find a way to mess it up. Such a loser, right? And I don't know, maybe you have identified yourself in that way before, but one person I know that identified himself in such a way, at least at a certain time in his life, is King David. And that's who we're looking at today. Now, King David is a giant of biblical proportions. He was an ancestor of Christ and a fabled king, but he started out as nothing more than the youngest son in a long line of heirs and the shepherd of his family's herd. And um, his story teaches us so much about the heart of God, so much about the heart of God. We're first introduced to David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. At this point in time, when we are introduced to him and we are seeing uh, David basically anointed as the future king, 
David is not king, right? I just told you he was a shepherd boy. Saul was actually king. And Saul was the king that the people desired. And the reason that he was the king that the people desired is because he looked the part. Saul was a warrior. He was tall. He was tall for that day and age. He wasn't Goliath, but he was like the Hebrew Goliath. I don't know. First Samuel 9.2 says this, and he had a son whose name was Saul. Listen to how it describes Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He's a good-looking fellow. And it said, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Right? He was good-looking. Like he, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm mad this dude was yoked, right? Taller than everybody else. Like he could see all the things. People are like, who should be king? And Saul's like, I don't know, maybe this guy, right? Like, poof, me. Uh, and they were like, him, he should be king. He's certainly not a loser at first glance, right? I mean, just by looking at him, he was such an impressive man. So impressive that the Israelites, who at this time, believe it or not, are still being governed by God. God is still living amongst them. He's still giving them like direct instruction through, you know, different prophets, Samuel, and just different people. And, and God is among them. And yet they say, hey, God, we know you're God, but we want this guy. We want this guy. God says in 1 Samuel 10, 19, today you rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. You have said to him, set a king over us. God's like, you rejected me. You want this guy? You shouldn't want this guy, but you want this guy? And they're like, yeah, we want that guy. And he's like, all right, you got him. You got him. And in not so surprising twist, Saul fails as king. He fails as king. And his failure leads to a rejection of God. God says, you will no longer receive my blessing. You will no longer receive my favor. I gave you some direct instructions, and you didn't do that. And just so you know the direct instruction, I encourage you to read through this, but it's like 25 chapters of this whole story, and I wasn't going to read it all to you today. Um, so I would encourage you to read it. But basically what happens is God tells Saul, hey, go and conquer this land and destroy everything. Like, this is not something that you want to basically infect your society. You need to get rid of all of it. Well, Saul goes and he gets rid of most of it, but then he finds some things that catch his eye. They're good looking, right? Like, they're the finest of the finest animals. They're the finest of the finest objects. And he says, oh, I'm going to keep them for myself. I'm going to keep them for myself. When he's called out about it, he, he says, this is just so we can give an offering to God. So he was like, what do we tell you to do? What did we tell you to do? We told, he told, God told you to get rid of everything. But Saul said, no, I want to keep some of these things for myself. In 1524, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Why did he do it? Because he feared the people and he obeyed their voice. Now that's his, at least his excuse. That's at least his excuse. And as we continue through today, I want you to kind of hold on to this scenario, because remember, it certainly seems like Samuel is repenting, doesn't it? I have sinned. I have transgressed. But still, he doesn't experience the grace of God. And, and we're going to explain why later. But here's our first lesson. Okay? Here's our first lesson. We set ourselves up for failure when we value the opinion of others more than we value the opinion of God. Frankly, that's when we all get ourselves in trouble. When we chase after the things that people tell us should be important. And out of everyone here, I'm willing to bet that I'm the worst at this because I love things. 
I love shiny things. I love pretty things. I love ugly things. I, I just love things. I like to have things. I collect things. I would be a hoarder if my wife allowed it, right? Because I just want the things. But I want the bigger, nicer house. I want the fancy boat. I want the best truck. I want the coolest watch. I want the best laptop. I want the newest video game system. I want the coolest clothes. I want the best shoes. I just want the things. I want the things. And if I was being honest with you, the only thing I really cared about is probably the boat and the truck. I'd live like anywhere that had a roof as long as I had a boat and truck, being honest with you, right? But I want the things because I want other people to say, look at his things. He's got cool things. I'd be like, yeah, I got cool things. And then I can do the Midwestern thing where I brag and be like, I didn't pay full price for it. I got it for half off, right? Because that's what we love to do. We love to point out the cool things that we got that we didn't pay full price for. I got a heck of a deal on it. It was a steal. And everybody like, in the Midwest is like, yeah. We love you now. Saul just grew up in the wrong area. He should have been in the Midwest. Everybody would have understood. But we set ourselves up for failure when we seek out the opinion of others and we seek out the approval of others over the approval of God. Too many of us overvalue what the world says is important and ignore what God says is important. It's exactly what Saul did. Sure, Saul looked like a king. Tall, dark, handsome, intimidating, much like myself but he had none of the qualities that would have made him a good king, much like myself. Too many of us are concerned with looking like we have everything in order instead of actually getting everything in order. If it looks like I have everything in order, that's good enough because then at least people will think I have everything in order, but in real life, in actual terms of what's going on in our life, we are in shambles. We build on this lesson, we continue to build on this lesson as we read through God's anointing of David as king in 1 Samuel. See, Samuel is instructed after saying, hey, Samuel, you, you wanted Saul and the people wanted Saul and he looked the part and I told you you shouldn't have, but you wanted him, I gave him to you and he failed. So now I'm going to appoint the king that I want to be king. And what he tells him is you're going to have to go find this guy, Jesse. He's an older man, he's got a bunch of sons, and from those sons, I am going to choose the future king. Well, the first candidate that Samuel comes across is Jesse's son, Eliab. Samuel sees him and thinks this is the guy. Why does he think this is the guy? Because he's tall, dark, and handsome. He's learned nothing. He certainly looks like the king. This must be the king. And the minute he thinks that, God says in chapter 16, verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. You see, God cares more about substance than style. And we should do the same. God cares more about substance than style, and we should do the same. Not only was God's desire for the people to learn from their mistakes, which obviously they weren't doing because they set the same qualifications for to pick their new king, but it was to further align with the idea of what was important, which is really what our faith journey is all about. It's about becoming more like Christ and more like God as we identify what should be important to us and making those things a priority. That's how we finish the race. That's how we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. God found what he was looking for in the youngest son, David. 
Here's the cool part of the story. All the sons are there, right? Except for David, because he's the youngest. Like, who wants that? And he's tiny. Who wants that? And he's out watching sheep. Yeah, right, king. And all the sons are here, and God's like, it ain't any of these. And Samuel goes, do you have anybody else? And I'm like, yeah, we got David, but he's back there watching sheep. Samuel's like, well, bring him up. So somebody, probably reluctantly, goes and gets him. And God's like, this is the one. This is him. This is him. And David was anointed king. David was anointed king. Remember, at this point, Saul is still king. And the transition from shepherd boy to king would take some time. But David was called. He was called. And we see this truth that is proven throughout Scripture over and over again. Something I've said before and I will say I'm sure a million more times. God equips the called. He doesn't necessarily call the equipped. He equips the called. He doesn't necessarily call the equipped. And you've heard it said that way or many other ways, right? But there is a truth to that, that God sees someone and chooses someone and says, obviously, they're not ready for this job, but I'm going to get them there. I'm going to get them there. And we see that in David's story. There was nothing inherently special about David. By the definition Rodney gave last week, David was a loser. There was nothing in and of himself that was going to allow him to accomplish becoming king. Nothing. There seemingly was was nothing special about him, at least at first glance, other than this. God called him. God called him. God said, I want this loser to be my king. David was small in stature, a shepherd. Now, we are told he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So there's at least that. But nothing that would lead anyone to believe that he would be king. Again, except for the fact that God said it would be so. Hear this truth. You are who God says you are. You are who God says you are. We are who God says we are. We are who God says we are. All the time, every time. Our world is obsessed with defining us. We're this, that, and the other. Right? All day long, we assign and attach labels not only to ourselves but everyone around us because the world tells us that we have to identify ourselves as whatever we are. The problem is that we are sinful by nature. We are messed up creations. And so we don't adequately identify ourselves. We don't appropriately identify ourselves. And while we are looking in the mirror saying, I am a loser. God is saying, well, you might be a moron, but you're certainly not a loser, right? Because I say you're something greater. I define you. I am your God. And in me, you will find your identity. I already said it. I've identified myself so many times in my life as a loser, as less than, as not worthy. Maybe you have too. But God has the final say.
As we look back at the story of David and we continue, again in chapter 16 is when he is anointed, but we have to go all the way, that's a first Samuel, we have to get all the way to second Samuel before we ever see David even think about becoming king. It's a span of roughly 15 years. 15 years from the promise to seeing the fruition of that promise. His life was uprooted. It was filled with twists and turns. He was a focus of Saul's wrath and assassination attempts, whom he considered a type of father figure. But through it all, he chased after God and he followed God's will for his life. And he continues this pattern all the way up until he sees a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop. Now this is after David has been called a man after God's own heart. And instead of God's instruction, David is led by his lust and covetousness. I don't even know if that's a word, but I made it one for this week. For another man's wife. So what happens is his troops, they're out to war. They're out to battle. And David's in his castle and he walks out on, I'm assuming they're called ramparts. I don't know, a balcony, right? He's out looking. And he looks down. And there's a woman bathing on a roof, because apparently in this day and age, that's something you did. You just bathed in the open on your roof. And he looks down, and he sees this young lady by the name of Bathsheba, and he likes what he sees. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4, it says, David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. We all know what that means, right? And then it says, she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness after and she returned to her house. Well, after she's returned to her house, David gets word from her, hey, I'm with child, which if you lay with a woman, can often happen. And it happens. Rather in this moment, repenting of his sin, recognizing the grievous error that he made, David says, well, I gotta cover this up. I gotta cover this up. So he sins for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and he calls him in under the guise of wanting a report of how the battle's going. And Rye reports, and he tells him all the things. And David says, great, thanks for letting me know. Now go home to your wife. Right? The dude's been away for a long time. He's been at battle. He goes home to see his wife for the first time in a while. You can kind of think what David thinks is going to happen. And so once that happens, David can say, his child, not mine. Right? Because, you know, what he wasn't counting for was that this man was a man of good character. He was a man of good character. He refuses to go home. Not because he doesn't want to see his wife, but because he is a leader of men and his men don't get the same privilege. They're out sleeping in the middle of nowhere, on the ground, on the stone steps. And so he says, I'm going to sleep right next to him. So David's plan is thwarted. It doesn't go the way that David wants it to. So what does David do? David repents of his sin, right? And he says, God, forgive me. I've done so much wrong. And no, David doesn't do that. David says, well, time to go to plan C. Send him to the front lines. And not just send him to the front lines where he has to fight, but once the battle gets really bad, everybody else pull back. Well, then he dies. Now I don't have to worry about it. 
and I'll just take her for another wife. And that's what happens. Sends him to the front lines. He dies. First Samuel 13, 14. Don't have it up here, but it's the verse that describes David at a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. Murdering, coveting, adulteratoring. Also a made-up word. You're welcome. But also, but also what we're going to see, repenting and finding forgiveness, yet, yet still dealing with the consequences of his actions. Because if you read the story, you find out that David loses that child that he has with Bathsheba, and from there, his kingdom is pretty much in shambles. His sons are after his throne. He doesn't live really another peaceful day in his life. These are the consequences of his action, but as far as his eternal consequences, he has found forgiveness from God. And he gets it from a man named Nathan who comes and tells him this awful story about this awful human being. And David's like, that guy should die. And then Nathan's like, that guy is you. And David goes, uh-oh. Right? Uh-oh. And in 2 Samuel 12, 13, says, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Why does Saul lose his favor and David doesn't? We'll get to that. But here's what you need to understand about sin. We are only defined by our sin if we remain in our sin and allow it to be our identity. And I could tell you for so long, that's how I've identified myself. Not as a child of God, not as someone who has experienced grace, not as someone who has been forgiven beyond what they deserve, but as that sinner who continuously still sins. And if we allow that to be our identity, then that's what our identity will be. And I firmly believe that that's what we will continue to do because that's how we see ourselves. But remember, we are who God says we are, and we have to redefine ourselves with what God says we are, and God says we are forgiven. And so we are forgiven, and we must move forward. So this brings us to the end. David didn't allow himself to be defined by a singular moment in his life, which so many of us struggle with. But the reason that he was able to overcome, the reason that he was able to experience forgiveness is because he was truly repentant. Now, if you're anything like me, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because as I was reading through this whole story, I thought, like, Saul kept some things that God told him not to keep, right? Saul didn't kill some things that God was like, you must annihilate. And yet he lost God's favor. David murdered, coveted, committed adultery. And yet he finds forgiveness. Why? It certainly doesn't seem like justice certainly doesn't seem like a fair God. But if you'll remember from our New Testament teachings, the wages of sin is death, right? All sin. It doesn't talk about individual sins. All sin. They all lead to the same place. But there is a gift from God that blots out those sins. That results in eternal life. So why did David experience it when Saul's sins really seem less egregious? 
In Psalm 51, 10 through 11, I think we get our answer. This is a Psalm of David. This is written after his transgressions with Bathsheba. And this is what he asked for. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Listen to verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Here's the difference between Saul and David. David was afraid of losing God's presence, while Saul was afraid of losing God's favor. Those are two very different things. David did not care about his kingdom. David did not care about his riches. David did not need to be king. David needed God. And that's what he was able to express. I have allowed my sin to overtake me. I have allowed my sin to become my God. The only thing I ask is that you forgive me and you not send me out from your presence. Regardless of what comes of my life, regardless of the outcome, regardless of what is given or taken away, what I need and want is you. Saul's response is, gee, I'm sorry, can I still have my things? That's the difference. God was afraid, or David was afraid of losing God's presence. Saul was afraid of losing God's favor. And we better see the difference. Because too many of us, myself included at times, are afraid of losing God's favor and not afraid of losing his presence. And only one of those things makes you a loser. Let's pray. God, I come to you right now this morning and I thank you for this day. I thank you that you are a loving God that has paved a way for us to experience forgiveness for our transgressions. Lord, I know sometimes we read these stories and these things don't make sense to us because our ways are not your ways and our thoughts are not your thoughts and we don't always see clearly what's taking place. But God, you have shown over and over again to all of us that if we seek you, if we have true repentance, if we turn from our sin and we turn to you, that we can and we will be forgiven. That forgiveness is available to all of us. God, out there today, there are people that are not forgiving themselves when you have already forgiven them. And by doing so, they are telling you that their sin is bigger than their God. And that in and of itself is a sin. And God, I pray that you rebuke them of that and that you take that away from them. Because our God is bigger, our God is greater, our God is stronger. There is nothing that can overcome your will and your way. Father, for those out there that are struggling today, wondering if those struggles are a result of their choices, Lord, I pray that you would put those thoughts out of their mind. That you would help them to only focus on living life each day to the fullest for the gospel. That you would help them focus on living in such a way that seeks to justify for them Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And yet, Lord, help us to understand that we are already justified because you said that it was so. You deemed us worthy when we were not. 
And frankly, Lord, when it comes to matter of, of faith, we are all losers. Because there is nothing that we can accomplish in this realm on our own. But there is another that is in the fire. There is another walking right next to us. In these times, God, where we feel like the world is bigger, the world is greater, it's too much, help us to remember that you created that world. We ask for strength and peace and resolve. We ask for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right now, we're going to stand and we're going to worship. And maybe that's all you need to do. Maybe you just need to worship God today for everything it is that He has done for you in your life. Or maybe you need to pray. And if that's you, I encourage you to come pray with me today or to come use our stage as an altar. Kneel, pray to Him. Pray in your seats. If you need somebody to pray with you and you don't want to come up here, find somebody in the audience. Ask them to pray with you. Ask them to pray with you. Don't let something in your life go unresolved. Don't go through a battle on your own. None of us were called to do that. That is not a sign of strength. It's not. And in fact, if I'm being honest with you, it's the exact opposite. It is a sign of weakness. You were created to be in relationship, not just with God, but with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you're struggling today, don't go through it alone. No one wants you to do that. No one here wants you to do that. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you haven't made Him the most important thing in your life, and you just want to have a conversation about what that even means, how to do that, come talk to me today. It doesn't even have to be now. It can be after service. But come talk to me today. Because I can promise you there is no greater issue in your life to resolve than the status of your relationship with Jesus Christ. I would not say it if I didn't believe it. So that's why I'm saying it. Let's stay and let's worship. Let's give God his due.